very last book in the Old Testament. We're launching a new series today, um, Hard Words for Hard Times. Hard Words for Hard Times. We're going to be spending the next several weeks in the book of Malachi, and, and um, this, this book, as I've been studying and, and, and just preparing these sermons, has, has been quite a journey uh, for me. There's been some things that I've learned, some ways that I've been challenged by the Lord in my own life. Uh, and as we begin to journey through this book, uh, there are some things that I believe will serve us well in our understanding and our application of the things that we're going to look at. So uh, please note, Malachi was written to 50,000 Jewish exiles who had just returned to Judah from Babylon. So the book is written to these exiles. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, the walls uh, had been rebuilt because of Nehemiah. The temple had been restored. And, and the revival that came with those two things quickly diminished the moment that Nehemiah was not on the scene anymore. So revival in people's lives, people are coming back to the Lord. We see it in Ezra as well. People are reading the word of God. People are praising God. People are praying together. And then those two leaders are gone. Malachi steps onto the scene and the revival that was taking place is completely diminished. Completely gone. Malachi steps in and his name means my messenger. God sends Malachi, whose name means my messenger. Now, these people were on the brink of moving in one of two directions. They were either going to move into revival once again, or they were going to walk very quickly into ruin. Revival or ruin. You know, they were increasingly becoming aware of the coming Messiah. They heard that he was going to come, but yet they had begun to grow rebellious in some groups, where others began to grow very self-righteous. You ever know someone self-righteous? Like the holier-than-thou, like, look at me, I'm all prim and proud. Anybody know, know that person? Right? What about the rebellious one? Anyone know the rebellious one? The one that's like, ah, nope, I'm not, not doing that church thing anymore. I'm not doing that God thing anymore. I'm walking away from all of it, right? These were the two groups of people here that Malachi is talking to. And these groups, because of their self-righteousness, because of their rebellion, they began to question and argue with God. Now, these people are back in their homelands. They're, they're, they're not um, getting things the way that they want them. They didn't think that things were going the way that they should. And so in their eyes, they had to blame somebody, but not blame ourselves. So we begin to blame God. They're drawing near to God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And so Malachi, Malachi begins to lay out some sins of the people. The, the willful sinning of the people. Malachi says, you're refusing to honor God. He says, you're, you're repudiating God's love. He says, you're rejecting God's faithfulness. You're redefining God's righteousness. You're robbing God of his riches. You're reviling the grace of 
like God. And so corruption and complacency and carnality began to run rampant within the people. I found it very difficult to read and, and to study out some of these things because I had the thought the people didn't learn the lesson when they were in exile. They didn't learn. And they began to grow skeptical of God's love for them. And then they began to grow careless in their worship of God. And they began to, to, to walk in indifference to the truth. They were disobedient to the, to the covenant in which they had promised of God. And if you really study this out, you begin to see faithlessness in marriage. They begin to become stingy in their offerings. All because they wanted what they wanted, when they wanted it, and how they wanted it. So Malachi steps back onto the scene, and he has this message that is the last words of God for 400 plus years. The very last words that we have here. And if you really want to get technical when you step into the New Testament chronologically speaking the silence of God is broken by John the Baptist when he yells the word repent just one word breaks the silence of God repent now I want us to read in verse number one of Malachi chapter 1, and it says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, I want us to just hang right there for just a moment. That word oracle comes from the Hebrew word Massah, which is M-A-S-S-A. And that word Massah means burden or burdensome. And so the very first words of Malachi literally read the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It's exactly what he says. And God had given Malachi this burden. Listen, church, the word of the Lord is often called a burden in the Old Testament. Whenever you see that word oracle, it means burden. And, that, and the reason why it is used in that way is because the word of God is never light. The word of God is never trifling, is what the, the writer is trying to communicate to us, that it's always weighty, that the word of God is serious, that it's heavy. And I, I don't mean that the word of God is dull or boring. That's not what I mean here. That's not what the writer intended us to see. They wanted us to see that the word of God is always substantial, that there is no mirage in the word of God, that it's always meaty. And like I was telling our prayer team this morning, even the milk of God's word is meaty when you think about it. When you look at the implications for one's life, even the milk of God's word is meaty. Now the word of God comes to the prophet as a burden because it's so thick and rich with truth. The, the word of God is, is called a burden because even when it's good news, it's rejected by many. I believe it was Isaiah who groaned under the weight of his preaching ministry. 
And then it says in the book of Isaiah that as he spoke glorious things, the heart of the people grew fat and their ears grew heavy and their eyes were shut, meaning that they were rejecting everything that Isaiah said. Isaiah even said in Isaiah 53, who has believed our reports and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah was trying to tell people that every time I speak truth, I'm met with opposition after opposition after opposition. And he wasn't just talking about in a spiritual sense, right? The moment that truth goes forth, we're always met with spiritual opposition. But he's talking about in a physical sense as well. Listen, the words of God were designed for life, but those words of life become the aroma for death of those who are perishing. I mean, Paul himself said that it's foolish. It was foolish for those who were perishing. Listen, people don't want to hear the truth. And to be 100% honest with you, over the last several months of my life, what it means to be a, pay, a faithful pastor has really changed in my perspective. It's changed. God has begun to rip apart and shred things that I thought were long gone in my life. And I've come to a place where I feel like now more than ever, I must take up the burden of every single text that the Lord gives to me and do as best as I can through the work of the Holy Spirit to deliver it to you as my own burden. As my own burden. And, and for several, several reasons. Primarily because many reject the word and they sit in self-righteousness or rebellion. The, the burden in preaching for me is that I cannot preach to you unless I preach to myself. Unless I've walked through that fire in my own life. Until my heart and my soul and my mind are made right and I'm tenderized to the things of God. Over these last several months, there has been deep within me a, a passion and a desire to communicate the whole counsel of God with unwavering conviction. And to be honest with you, church, sometimes that's a little scary. But there's been this ever-growing conviction in me as I realize now more than ever that I cannot make anyone love God. And that in my preaching on Sundays or my teaching on Wednesday nights, my heart is often breaking over what God's trying to convey and people sit there and stiff arm him. They push him away. And to be honest with you, as I read some of these passages of scripture, I feel myself in their place at times. Like I understand what you mean when you say that you were met with opposition because you spoke truth. And yet God's like, here's the strength for a little bit more. Here's the truth a little bit more. Here's the drive more. Here's the desire more. Every single person, myself first, and included in this, need to change in some way. 
Every person in here, including myself first, needs to grow more in love and grow more in grace and grow more in mercy. Amen, church? And that's why right now I'm going to ask us to do something really hard. As your pastor, I'm going to ask you to do something really hard because maybe for some of us in this room, we've been unwilling to do the hard thing. Maybe, maybe for some, we didn't know how to do the hard thing. And I want for us to realize in this place that though this, this message to, to, to the Israelites was written thousands of years ago, it still pertains to us. We can still learn something from this portion of Scripture. God's people were brought out of the exile of sin through salvation. And all too often, the same is true of us, that we have a tendency to still be unfaithful. We still have that tendency. We sit knowing that the Lord is coming at any moment, and yet we're still unwilling to change. Still. In fact, many times we would rather question and argue with God than just submit. Would you guys agree with me? I remember several years ago, um, I was in a friend's home and I was probably... 16, maybe 17 years of age. And their parents were gone at work. And we were sitting up in the one, the one kid's room. I, one of my friends and, and his siblings were sitting in there with us. And um, his parents weren't there. And the door was mostly closed. And, and we were sitting in there. And we were having a conversation that went something similar to this. Why? Do we have all of these rules here in our house? Anybody's teen ever say that to them uh, as they were growing up? As a teen, did you ever think that or say that, right? I remember that individual saying, why do we have all of these rules here in this house? I can't stand living here anymore. I hate the food that mom and dad make us eat. I hate that we can't do this. I don't like that I have to do these chores. Little did we know in the midst of that conversation that the mom was standing outside of the door listening to every single word that we were saying. And I remember statement after statement after statement, not just them. I was a stupid teenager. And though my parents were never going to find out what I said, and they never will because I will not repeat it. I love you both. Statement after statement after statement, we called into question their love and their care and their provision. It was all in question, always, at least in our eyes. And I could not help but think of that, that, that specific instance in time as I was reading through this. And look what it says in verse number two. God, God says to them, I have loved you, says the Lord. But the Israelites, what do they say back? How 
How have you loved us? And so the Lord replies, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated and I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this place, Lord, and I am asking of you now to, to take these truths that you have given to me, Lord, and, and impress them upon our hearts and lives. That we would not go away unchanged, Lord, but we would have things to meditate upon, and, and, and we would walk in greater submission and obedience to you. Lord, move in this place. Holy Spirit, we do not want to push you aside. We do not want to be like the ones that Paul calls seared in our consciences. God, work. Move in this place. Make us so uncomfortable in our sinfulness that we have nowhere to run to except for you. God, do revival in our lives. Start right here. So that our lives glorify you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. How have you loved us? Israel says. How have you loved us? That's the kind of question, as I read this, and I thought that that's the kind of question that's rarely spoken, but it's often kept inside the heart of man. We don't speak it out loud, but we've thought it. We felt it. It asks God, if you really love me, then why are things the way that they are? The Israelites, and oftentimes us, question the love of God, and, and in that we diminish the instances of the love of God. We, we don't acknowledge God's kindness, but instead we challenge him to give proofs of his love that are material. And as I was studying this portion of scripture, I was reminded of some things that the Lord spoke specifically to Israel in the Old Testament prior to this. And those verses are going to hit the screen. But look at this first one, Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. It says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you for the house, or from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, Deuteronomy 7. What about Jeremiah 33 or 31.3? The Lord appeared to him from far away saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I will continue my faithfulness to you. What about Isaiah 62? That one's not going to come to the screen for you. Another prophet says that we are not called forsaken anymore. That we're not called desolate anymore. 
But Isaiah says that we shall be named or called God's delight. God's delight. What about Hosea? Man, if you ever struggle with the love of God, read the book of Hosea. Read the book of Hosea. You will not be sorry. Hosea 11.1 says that when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called him my son. A beautiful display of the love of God. Matthew Henry said this of God's love. He says, God justly takes it very ill to have his favor slighted as not worthy of speaking. And it is very absurd for us to ask wherein he has loved us when whatsoever way we look, we are met with proofs and instances of his love. Amen, church? Whatever way you look, there is proof of God's love. And so God replies to the Israelites. I want you to look with me back at verse number two. He says, I have loved you. And they say, how have you loved us? Listen to this. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. Stop right there. Stop right there. God, I'm going I'm to do um, as, as best as I can here to explain this to you. And if you have questions about this afterwards, please come and talk to me. Please come and see me. When God said that he hated Esau, he did not hate Esau in the sense of cursing him and striking out against him. Right? We, we hear the term hate and we automatically assume in our humanness that God's going to punish him like a big kid with a magnifying glass and he's the ant. And he's just going to get burned all up. That's not what God was saying. He was not saying, I hate him because I want to curse him or destroy him. I mean, Esau, according to Genesis chapter 33 and chapter 36, was a blessed man. God allowed blessing into Esau's life. But yet when God chose Jacob, he left Esau unchosen to receive the blessing that was passed on from Abraham to Isaac and then to his brother Jacob. Now, we, we should remember in Scripture, right? Because I sat here and I went back and forth with my wife for like nearly two hours. And commentary after commentary after commentary that I read, they argued back and forth about the doctrine of election. And for those of you who are like, well, what does that mean? Well, there is a belief out there that God chose some people specifically and that it was a limited number of people and everybody else was doomed to hell from the beginning. Now, we know from Scripture that's not true, but there is a belief and a teaching out there of that very thought, and many people use this very passage of Scripture to pull that out of context. Now, I want us to understand something here. When this was written to us, the reason that God answers this way back to the Israelites was not to exclude. It was to comfort and to reassure his people. Church, did you catch that? It was not to exclude, it was to comfort and to reassure his people. Now I had someone say to me recently that they could not understand why God would say that he hated Esau. And my first thought was like, that's not my difficulty. 
My difficulty is understanding how he could love Jacob. As, as I've, I mean, I've studied scripture for a very long time, and I wrestled for a very long time. How did you love Jacob? How? How? I don't understand. My struggle is not that, not that he, he hated Esau, because here's the thing. God in his sovereignty is always just in the punishment that he gives. And so if someone rejects him, they've rejected the very love and grace and mercy of God. And so if they're punished because of their rejection, that's on them. That's not on God. And for those of you who walked through the book of Revelation, and those of you who are now in the study of Romans, we already began to look at how the wrath of God is that very thing with inside of him that, that is going against the contradiction of his holiness. And so, church, if, if you struggle with that very thought there, please come and talk to me, and I'd love to be able to spend time and unpack it. I just don't have the time now to do so. God is asking Israel here to find assurance that they were God's chosen and favored people. And before we can understand the Bible fully, before we can understand what Malachi is saying in this book, we first need to understand the heart of God. Amen, church? We have to understand the heart of God. Imagine with me for just a moment that you got this very letter in the mail. And it was full of correction. And it was full of rebuke. In my eyes, it would be really important to know who that letter came from. Amen? Like you'd want to know. And so the first thing I want you to know is that Malachi is a letter sent by a loving father. Write it down. Tattoo it on your heart. Malachi is a, a letter that is sent by a loving father. Whatever preconceived idea that you have in here today about a father, I'm asking you to please set it aside for the next five weeks. Just lay it aside. Because we should never ever start uh, with our earthly father or any earthly father for that matter and try to measure them up against the judge of God himself. It should be the other way around. We should start with our heavenly father and then judge all earthly fathers based upon that. Because that is our standard. And though this word, although to a specific people here, the exiles, it speaks directly and indirectly to us. These are the words of God to us. And we have a lot to gain. We have a lot to understand from the implications and the application of this passage. Church, I want you to please note here in Scripture that this letter is an expression of God's love to them. It's an expression of God's love. You know, God went to great lengths to express and demonstrate and display his love for his people. You can see it all throughout the Old Testament. As you read book after book after book after passage after passage, God's love is expressed over and over and over again to his people. And there would be one more final act years later that would prove forever the love of God. And that was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was the ultimate sacrifice of love for us. And so I want us to look at this next several weeks of time through the lens of a perfect, loving, heavenly father who has more than proved his love for us. More than proved his love. You know, God speaks and shares his heart because he loves us. Did you know that that's what makes Christianity unique and different from every other religion? That one thing, 
religion says that you have to earn your God's love. You have to earn it. You do multiple things, and maybe you get your God's love, and you don't mess up that bad, but I want you to please write something down. It's going to stay on the screen for you for a little bit. Religion is about you and what you do and what you earn, and it rises and it falls on you. Where Christianity is God saying, I love you, and because I love you, my love will compel you to obey me. That's what Christianity is in a nutshell. Versus religion. Religion is all about me. Christianity is all about God and his love for us or towards us. And God did not love us because we were great. God did not love us. It's that God's love is what makes him so great, not me. And we had nothing to do with the love of God at all. And this letter explains God's love to his children. And now, now that we know that God loves us, and so did these people, what should have their response been? Think about it. They knew that God loved them. How should they have responded to God? It should have been, we love you too, Dad. We love you too, Dad. But look at their response. How? How have you loved us? You know, as shocking as I found that response to be, it really caused me to take a step back and evaluate my response to God's love. And really the challenge for us as a body, how am I responding to God's love? Heart check. Like, I mean, many of us are here and at some point or another, we have probably struggled with, I don't feel like God loves me. Anybody ever been in that place? Whether in the past, now, you, you might even walk into that in the future. Right? How can God love me? There's no way. And we, we question God's love when we're looking at our circumstances and situations and our sicknesses and our marriages and our wayward children and our financial hardships and the list could continue, but we simply begin to develop an attitude just like these people. And we call into, into question God's love for us. But really, uh, church, I'm asking you right now to be honest in this very moment with your heart. How many times have we directly or indirectly questioned God's love in our life? How many times? I mean, if God really loved us, things would be different. If God really loved me, this would not have happened to me. I would feel differently about this situation if God really loved me. We, we all too often have a sense of entitlement. God owes me. God owes me. And just like my friends and I grumbling and complaining in that room, this is like a slap in the face to God. You know, some of us have had that, own, that, that experience with our own kids, right, parents? Like some of, a, some of us have had our children say things to us. They've had them uh, accuse us. They've acted in ways in public that are shameful or embarrassing. And here's the question, how do we respond? 
when those things happen. Maybe it's your grandkids now, your nieces, your nephews. How do we respond versus how does God respond to those situations? I mean, some of us are good parents as long as our kids are good, right? I mean, nobody, nobody wants to, to take that card. Like as soon as our children become bad, we start responding in certain ways that are often wrong. And when our kids test us, the real us shows up. And we begin to act in ways that are not expressing grace and love and mercy. Listen, I've been there before. I've been in that very place, right? Often because of my own pridefulness. Like stop acting that way because it makes me look bad, right? I mean, we, we chuckle and laugh, but that's really the thought in our, we don't voice it, maybe, but that's really what's going on inside of us. Like my kid's acting out, and that's a direct correlation to me right here, right? And we, we begin to respond in these ways where look at, look at the way that God responded. He responded to his kids, and he goes, I'm going to send Malachi to share with you my heart. I'm going to send Malachi so that you're reminded of my love for you. Again, after this vicious cycle of the Old Testament, if you've ever studied or read at length, this is the cycle that we see. They're rescued. The Israelites are rescued. They worship God. They become complacent and fall into sin, and now they're rebelling. And then they have to repent. And then, guess what? Then we're, we're worshiping God and we're doing everything that we're supposed to be doing. And then guess what? We become complacent and we fall into sin. And then we get, we get exiled and then we have to repent. And then the whole process is this vicious cycle throughout the entire Old Testament. And here we go yet again. And God goes, here's my messenger to tell you I love you. To tell you I love you. And one of the most difficult and misrepresented statements Malachi starts to unwind and unpack God's love for them and if you come back next week I will by the grace of God be here to expound upon it and as we wrap up this this first week I just want to share something with you this morning every time every time we complain and every time we grumble, and every time we unfairly question and argue and rebel against our parents or our legal or our spiritual authorities, when we act self-righteous, when we disobey the commands of God, we are saying to our Heavenly Father, we don't really love you. We are slapping God in the face. He brought us out of, out of the exile of sin to be one of his children. He gave us eternal life. He forgives us. He blesses us. I'm pretty sure the word of God says that every good and perfect gift is from above. I love what the author of Psalm 130 said that said there is forgiveness in you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness 
in you that you may be feared. God's, God's love places within us a desire. A, a reverential fear is placed within us to fall on our face and we should have tears in our eyes saying, thank you God that I belong to you. Thank you, God, that you are my father and you love me unconditionally even when I am unfaithful. You know, there, there is nothing that, that separates us despite us sometimes being pushed away. And I love that God is always waiting to pull me back close. Aren't you, church? You know, God's, God's love for us should cause us to be humbled. A, a place where we are on our knees before him in gratitude. You know, one of the things that I didn't get to hit on on Wednesday night, Paul made a very quick statement in the book of Romans. And he makes the statement that says, because they were unthankful in their hearts. I've learned something in my short 33 years of life. All sinfulness stems from unthankful hearts. We're not content with the things that we've been given. We are not thankful or grateful for the things that we have. And so it leads us to wanting more or something different or something else. And all of our sinfulness stems right there. I've said this to you before. A uh, great friend and pastor um, from, from Florida that, that spent a lot of time with me used to say, you can't break commandments 2 through 10 until you've broken, broken the first one. Until you've broken the first one, you've replaced God. If you were thankful, if you were on your knees and thankful for God, you would never replace him. Never. And so really, this is a two-part challenge today from these five verses the the challenge is where where have we rejected or misplaced or, or or challenged the love of god that's the first one and the second one is am i am i truly thankful for the love of god am i truly thankful Imagine if you woke up today with only the things that you thanked God for yesterday. What would you still have? Would it just be your car? Would it just be money? Would it be the love of God? Would it be your spouse, your family, this church? Or would it just be your dog? That's not to make you laugh. That's a serious question. If I woke up today with only the things that I thanked God for yesterday, what would I still have? The Israelites were unthankful. But there's no better way, at least in my opinion, there's no better way for us to show God his thankfulness Except for worship. I don't believe that there is a, a better 
a better place to worship God than with brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, it's easy. It's easy in this place. To, this should be the easiest place that we worship. 